Two, Chapter One of the Mill on the Floss. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Lucy Burgoyne. The Mill on the Floss by George Eliot. Book Two, School Time, Chapter One, Tom's. First half. Tom Tulliver's sufferings during the first quarter he was at King's Lawton, under the distinguished care of the Reverend Walter Stelling, were rather severe. At Mr. Jacob's academy, life had not presented itself to him as a difficult problem. There were plenty of fellows to play with, and Tom, being good at all active games, fighting especially. Had that precedence among them, which appeared to him inseparable from the personality of Tom Tulliver, Mr. Jacobs himself, familiarly known as Old Goggles, from his habit of wearing spectacles, imposed no painful awe, and if it was the property of snuffy old hypocrites like him to write like copper plate and surround their signatures with arabesques. To spell without forethought, and to spout my name is noble, without bungling. Tom, for his part, was glad he was not in danger of those mean accomplishments. He was not going to be a snuffy schoolmaster. He, but a substantial man like his father, who used to go hunting when he was younger, and rode a capital black mare. As pretty a bit of horseflesh as ever you saw, Tom had heard what her points were a hundred times. He meant to go hunting too, and to be generally respected. When people were grown up, he considered nobody inquired about their writing and spelling. When he was a man, he should be master of everything, and do just as he liked. It had been very difficult for him to reconcile himself to the idea that his school time was to be prolonged, and that he was not to be brought up to his father's business, which he had always thought extremely pleasant, for it was nothing but riding about, giving orders, and going to market, and he thought that a clergyman would give him a great many scripture lessons, and probably make him learn the gospel. And epistle on a Sunday, as well as the collect. But in the absence of specific information, it was impossible for him to imagine that school and schoolmaster would be something entirely different from the academy of Mister Jacobs. So, not to be at a deficiency, in case of his finding genial companions, he had taken care to carry with him. A small box of percussion caps. Not that there was anything particular to be done with them, but they would serve to impress strange boys with a sense of his familiarity with guns. Thus, poor Tom, though he saw very clearly through Maggie's illusions, was not without illusions of his own. Which were to be cruelly dissipated by his enlarged experience at King's Lawton. He had not been there a fortnight before it was evident to him that life, complicated not only with the Latin grammar 
but with a new standard of English pronunciation, was a very difficult business, made all the more obscure by a thick mist of bashfulness. Tom, as you have observed, was never an exception among boys for ease of address, but the difficulty of enunciation a monosyllable in reply to Mr. or Mrs. Stelling was so great that he even dreaded to be asked at table whether he would have more pudding. As to the percussion cats, he had almost resolved, in the bitterness of his heart, that he would throw them into a neighbouring pond, for not only was he the solitary pupil, but he began even to have a certain scepticism about guns, and a general sense that his theory of life was undermined. For Mr. Stelling thought nothing of guns, or horses either, apparently, and yet it was impossible for Tom to despise Mr. Stelling as he had despised old goggles. If there were anything that was not thoroughly genuine about Mr. Stelling, it lay quite beyond Tom's power to detect it. It is only by a wide comparison of facts that the wisest full-grown man can distinguish well-rolled barrels from mere supernal thunder. Mr. Stelling was a well-sized, broad-chested man, not yet thirty, with flaxen hair standing erect, and large, lightish-gray eyes, which were always very wide-open. He had a sonorous bass voice, and an air of defiant self-confidence inclining to brazenness. He had entered on his career with great vigour, and intended to make a considerable impression on his fellow men. The Reverend Walter Stelling was not a man who would remain among the inferior clergy all his life. He had a true British determination to push his way in the world, as a schoolmaster in the first place, for there were capital masterships of grammar schools to be had, and Mr. Stelling meant to have one of them. But as a preacher also, for he meant always to preach in a striking manner, so as to have his congregation swelled by admirers from neighbouring parishes, and to produce a great sensation whenever he took occasional duty for a brother clergyman of minor gifts. The style of preaching he had chosen was the extemporaneous, which was held little short of the miraculous in rural parishes like King's Lawton. Some passages of Massillon and Bordeloo, which he knew by heart, were really very effective when rolled out in Mr. Stelling's deepest tones, but as comparatively feeble appeals of his own were delivered in the same loud and impressive manner, they were often thought quite as striking by his hearers. Mr. Stelling's doctrine was of no particular school, if anything. It had a tinge of evangelicalism from that was the telling thing. Just then, in the diocese to which King's Lawton belonged. In short, Mr. Stelling was a man who meant to rise in his profession, and to rise by merit, clearly, since he had no interest beyond 
what might be promised by a problematic relationship to a great lawyer who had not yet become Lord Chancellor. A clergyman who has such vigorous intentions naturally gets a little into debt at starting. It is not to be expected that he will live in the meagre style of a man who means to be a poor curate all his life, and if the few hundreds Mr. Timpson advanced toward his daughter's fortune did not suffice for the purchase of handsome furniture, together with a stock of wine, a grand piano, and the laying out of a superior flower garden, it followed in the most rigorous manner, either that these things must be procured by some other means, or else that the reverend Mr. Stelling must go without them, which last alternative would be an absurd procrastination of the fruits of success, where success was certain. Mr. Stelling was so broad-chested and resolute that he felt equal to anything. He would become celebrated by shaking the consciences of his hearers, and he would buy and buy edit a Greek play, and invent several new readings. He had not yet selected the play, for having been married little more than two years, his leisure time had been much occupied with attentions to Mrs. Stelling, but he had told that fine women what he meant to do some day, and she felt great confidence in her husband, as a man who understood everything of that sort. But the immediate step to future success was to bring on Tom Tulliver during this first half-year, for, by a singular coincidence, there had been some negotiation concerning another pupil from the same neighbourhood, and it might further a decision in Mr. Stelling's favour. If it were understood that young Tulliver, who Mr. Stelling observed in conjugal privacy, was rather a rough cub, had made prodigious progress in a short time. It was on this ground that he was severe with Tom about his lessons. He was clearly a boy whose powers would never be developed through the medium of the Latin grammar, without the application of some sternness. Not that Mr. Stelling was a harsh-tempered or unkind man, quite the contrary. He was jocose with Tom at table, and corrected his provincialisms and his deportment in the most playful manner. But poor Tom was only the more cowed and confused by this double novelty, for he had never been used to jokes at all like Mr. Stelling's, and for the first time in his life he had a painful sense that he was all wrong somehow. When Mr. Stelling said, as the roast beef was being uncovered, Now, Tulliver, which would you rather decline, roast beef or the Latin for it? Tom, to whom, in his coolest moments, a pun would have been a hard nut, was thrown into a state of embarrassed alarm that made everything dim to him except the feeling that he would rather not have anything to do with Latin. Of course, he answered, roast beef, whereupon there followed 
much laughter and some practical joking with the plates, from which Tom gathered that he had in some mysterious way refused beef, and, in fact, made himself appear a silly. If he could have seen a fellow pupil undergo these painful operations and survive them in good spirits, he might sooner have taken them as a matter of course. But there are two expensive forms of education, either of which a parent may procure for his son by sending him as a solitary pupil to a clergyman. One is the enjoyment of the reverend gentleman's undivided neglect. The other is the endurance of the reverend gentleman's undivided attention. It was the latter privilege for which Mr. Tulliver paid a high price in Tom's initiatory months at King's Lawton. That respectable miller and molster had left Tom behind and driven homeward in a state of great mental satisfaction. He had considered that it was a happy moment for him when he had thought of asking Riley's advice about a tutor for Tom. Mr. Stelling's eyes were so wide open, and he talked in such an off-hand, matter-of-fact way, answering every difficult, slow remark of Mr. Tulliver's with, I see, my good sir, I see. To be sure, to be sure. You want your son to be a man, who will make his way in the world, that Mr. Tulliver was delighted to find in him a clergyman whose knowledge was so applicable to the everyday affairs of this life, except Councillor Wilde, whom he had heard at the last sessions. Mr. Tulliver thought the Reverend Mr. Stelling was the shrewdest fellow he had ever met with, not unlike Wilde, in fact, He had the same way of sticking his thumbs in the armholes of his waistcoat. Mr. Tulliver was not by any means an exception in mistaking braziness for shrewdness. Most laymen thought Stalling shrewd, and a man of remarkable powers generally, it was chiefly by his clerical brethren that he was considered rather a fool fellow. but he told Mr. Tulliver several stories about swing and incendiarism and asked him advice about feeding pigs in so thoroughly secular and judicious a manner, with so much polished glibness of tongue, that the miller thought here was the very thing he wanted for Tom. He had no doubt this first-rate man was acquainted with every branch of information, and knew exactly what Tom must learn in order to become a match for the lawyers, which poor Mr. Tulliver himself did not know, and so was necessarily thrown for self-direction on this wide kind of inference. It is hardly fair to laugh at him, for I have known much more highly instructed persons than he make inferences quite as wide, and not at all wiser. As for Mrs. Tulliver, finding that Mrs. Stelling's views as to the airing of linen and the frequent recurrence of hunger in a growing boy entirely coincided with her own. Moreover, that Mrs. Stelling, 
though so young a woman, and only anticipating her second confinement, had gone through very nearly the same experience as herself with regard to the behaviour and fundamental character of the monthly nurse. She expressed great contentment to her husband when they drove away at leaving Tom with a woman who, in spite of her youth, seemed quite sensible and motherly, and asked advice as prettily as could be.